Welcome to Hypospadias Conversations with co-hosts Bonnie Steinberg and John Filippelli. We are members of the community that have experienced living with hypospadias, epispadias, the surgeries that are often used to correct for them. And we want to talk to people who are members of that community and their family and friends about many of the feelings and issues that we all have faced. We are not doctors. We do not represent the medical community and we want to be clear that we are discussing our personal experiences, experiences that too often are not shared, leaving many boys, men, and families feeling that they are alone. You are not alone. Our goal is to offer frank conversations about our thoughts, give many people company, give parents who are wondering what to do with their new babies that have been born with hypospadias or epispadias some resources to think about treatment to think about parenting boys with this difference. The conversations are personal, frank, and we hope that you are aware of how vulnerable we feel, how risky it feels to open ourselves up in public. We hope to cultivate your compassion and understanding and create more safety to have these conversations. Welcome to Hypospadias Conversations. I'm Bonnie Steinberg, and our co-host, John Filippelli, is off today. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Arlene Barretts. Dr. Barretts is a physician, the mother of two intersex adult women, and a longtime advocate for people with variations of sex development. And I'm pleased that we are going to begin this conversation today. Arlene, Dr. Barretts, I want to ask just a little bit of your personal history and involvement with the intersex community. So I'm the mother of two intersex women, and I learned in medical school in 1984 about intersex conditions. And what I learned was that they were something that was um, sort of a trick of nature on the people who had them and that people would have um, sex traits that were not matching their assigned sex. For example, a girl could be born with testes or um, a girl could be born with a penis. And what needed to happen in these cases was that those traits needed to be aligned with the sex that person was assigned so that they would feel that they were actually themselves that sex, there would not be any confusion. And since this often involves surgery and the surgery might you know, leave scars or other obvious um, things indicating that there was surgery, people were to be told lies about it. So that's 1984 and then fast forward to 1990 when I have two little girls, a six-year-old and a four-year-old and the six-year-old has surgery for a hernia. And in her hernia, there's a testis. And what that meant was that she was one of those girls who's born with testes. She was completely female. We never had any indication that there was anything different about her, but she was diagnosed with a condition called complete androgen insensitivity syndrome. And in that condition, girls are born with testes and their testes do make what we consider to be male hormones called androgens but the tissues of their body cannot react or respond to those androgens. They're sort of immune to any of those effects that would cause them to develop male traits. 
And that immunity is the insensitivity part of androgen insensitivity. And subsequently, my younger daughter was also diagnosed with androgen insensitivity syndrome. And they were little girls. Um, it was very lonely. We, we had lovely medical care who did, the doctors did tell us, they were very reassuring that things should be fine and that they would grow up and get married and have families if they wanted to. But you know, they didn't really indicate anything to us about how to talk to them or really how things were going to be for them as they grew up. So um, I decided on my own to just raise them with the expectation that they would be having families that did not include biological children, which was really the only limitation I could see that they would have. But as they approached adolescence, I really became anxious about talking to them about things like having a partner, um, how to talk to a partner, how they might feel about having a family. And so one of our doctors referred us to a support group for people with androgen insensitivity, and that was just absolutely life-changing. I think many people in the hypospadias community would not consider hypospadias an intersex condition, a congenital intersex birth trait. But when I was brought into the, uh, the support group, it was through my own involvement with my son's hypospadias and writing a, a master's thesis in bioethics, we had a consult with Ann Tamar Mattis and she told us about a joint support group for hypospadias and for the uh, intersex community. And so we went. So could you sort of describe how the issues of the intersex community might overlap with people who have hypospadias or epispadias? So the issues that you could um, deduce from what, you know, what I said before about people being lied to about having had their bodies modified um, often in significant ways, that, that happens to people with hypospadias. There is people are made to feel that it's shameful to have a body that's different in that way, even though other people aren't really looking at our genitals. It is something that is felt to be somewhat shameful. I think all of those things are commonalities that people who live with hypospadias can also have, not everybody, but the kinds of things that people seek support for when they have differences in sex traits, sometimes called intersex conditions, can affect all kinds of people. And so it's natural for those people to want to get together and support each other, regardless of what kind of body difference they have. Do you want to talk a little bit about the history of those support groups? I think, from what I understand, the development of the internet was integral to the founding and uh, for people to find each other. Yes, it was absolutely um, critical because people were often told that they were the only person in the world who was like them, which was very isolating. Um, you know, even knowing that there were other people, I still felt very isolated because I had no way to really reach out to anybody else. And so, um, and they also had been told mistruths. And so these women with androgen insensitivity went on the internet, found out their diagnoses, and then they were able to reach out and find each other. And so in the early 1990s, they got together and had a conference with a doctor who had done research on the 
androgen receptor gene. That's the gene that has a genetic difference that causes androgen insensitivity. And it was stunning for them to, to talk to other people who had grown up the way they had, you know, in their families, nobody talked about this. Again, it was shameful. Their parents had been told to lie to them. You know, it created a lot of trauma and there was a lot of healing that took place when they all got together and, and all over the world, people with similar conditions found each other and got together and found that kind of support and healing in those support groups. Also, there was the development of advocacy groups and one of the earliest ones was called the Intersex Society of North America. And that was started by a woman named Beau Laurent who wanted to change medical practice, but was really rebuffed by physicians. And she got together with other people who had had medical care that was harmful to them and started to advocate for changes in the way children were cared for. So we have a few issues here on the table. One is how do parents help get their children medical care? How do parents talk to their children and understand what they're getting? An alliance between what used to be called, and I'm realizing we have a lot of language that I might be misusing, an alliance but what, between what we used to call the intersex community or people with sex development differences and the hypospadias, epispadias concerns and community. And it it seemed to me when I went to the, when I go to the conferences, it's just, there's a lot of concern about educating the professionals, medical professionals to start treating people who are born with these conditions differently. How did the support groups develop that program of educating medical professionals? They reached out to medical professionals and asked them to come speak at their meetings, which was educational for the people who attended the meetings, but also for the clinicians who came uh, because they saw what it was really like to be a person living with one of the conditions. The, the doctor who went to the first AIS meeting, Dr. Charmian Quigley, has her life was transformed by meeting those people. And, you know, she made it her life's work to advocate for them and try to create change from within. And that's how we started just informally doing education. And then as time went on, some of the groups developed more formal educational programs in collaboration with clinicians. Do those educational programs have an impact on the clinicians? And how do parents access them? They do. I have not really had a clinician attend one of our meetings and not say that it profoundly affected them. And I'm sorry, what was the second part of your question about? How do parents access this information, which I want to talk about much more um, next? So there are... um, online resources that are developed by the support groups. The androgen insensitivity syndrome group was at first just for women with that specific condition. But as time went on, other people reached out to them to join the group. And they realized that regardless of a person's um, physical condition, the issues were the same. And for a long time, it was just women in the group. And eventually, we met our hypospadias brothers, and they were so wonderful that we wanted them to join us as well. And so the group is now known as Interconnect, and it's open to any parent or any person who is living with a variation of sex development. And the way parents can access the information is they can attend 
the support group meetings um, and they can access resources. And um, the, the meetings now, of course, with the advent of COVID, it was they, they have been virtual, uh, strictly virtual, but now our meeting this year of Interconnect will be in, in Niagara Falls in July. And of 2022, just 2022, to date this. Yeah. Yes. Um, you can go online to interconnect.org and find out the meeting information and register to go. And you can also register to attend virtually. That's great information. So just to repeat, people with hypospadias, boys born with hypospadias and epispadias share concerns about how they've been treated through the medical community. And sometimes I think about parental confusion. If, if you were told to lie to your child, that's a huge parent-child issue. What are the things that people in the intersex community or in Interconnect want professionals to know? And how did they get uh, some of the hospitals or medical centers to rethink the automatic approach to surgical correction. I think what people who are living with um, intersex traits or variations of sex development would like clinicians to know is that it's okay. It's, it's not something that needs to be a medical problem or a social problem. It's a, it's a bodily variation and bodies do exist on a spectrum and they don't need to be corrected before someone has a chance to have some input in that decision. One of the major areas of contention that is still ongoing is that there are babies who have surgery before they're old enough even to speak. And they have surgery to align their sex traits or their genitals with a gender that has been assigned to them. But in a significant proportion of cases, they grow up and they don't feel like they identify with that gender. And so in some cases, they feel like they've been given sex reassignment surgery that they didn't consent to. And that's, that's extremely traumatic. I think that is what, um, I think that's what the intersex community would like clinicians to know. And we have been able to reach out to some clinicians who have really listened and understood and recognize that these conditions do not need to be medicalized. When they're medicalized and made into something that needs to be fixed medically, that lends itself to thinking that they should be fixed medically. And what, what we really advocate is that the, the issues are more psychosocial. And so psychosocial support is more important for families and for children until they can make their own decisions. And so there are a couple of large institutions that have agreed to, to not do some of these types of surgery until people are old enough to have some input into that very important decision. Which institutions are those? Boston Children's Hospital and Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago. So those are major medical centers with teaching facilities. And so that's, that's, a, great, that's a great start. Um, it's my understanding also and from especially from the hypospadias community, that some of these surgeries in about, we guess, 50% of the cases, there are medical sequences and sequelae that are very, very challenging for 
the kids, for the adults. So for example, if you're told as a parent, as we were, that you can have the surgeries and the kid will never know, will forget, that's true, I guess, if, if it's a one-time experience. But so many of our kids, our hypospadias kids, need resurgeries. And so as they age, they're certainly aware of what's going on and aware of the downsides of many of these interventions. Do, do you have any elaboration or thoughts on that? So I did, you know, one of the things that I have done personally is to go to medical meetings of people in the specialties that treat these children. And, and among them are pediatric urologists who do most of the surgery. And I, I sat in a meeting one time where, um, and I do have to say there are different degrees of hypospadias. Let me back up. Some of it is very mild and it just, hypospadias is, I'm probably people who listen to this podcast know, but if it's your first time, it's a condition where the opening for urine to come out of the penis, which is called the urethra, is usually located at the very tip of the penis, right in the middle. And in hypospadias, it's located on the bottom of the penis. And if it's located pretty close to the end of the penis, that's called mild hypospadias. It can, it can open up anywhere from the, the close to the end, to the middle, to the bottom of the penis, to even the perineum, which is that skin between the penis and the um, rectum. And so in those cases where it's really severe hypospadias, when it's more toward the base of the penis. Those are the procedures that often become very involved and need to be repeated and modified multiple times. And clinicians know this. There are lots of papers that, that talk about this. And even in the institutions that have the most experience, this is true. And I, I went to a meeting one time where they were discussing this and one of the surgeons said, well, do you think we should tell parents the truth about this surgery? In other words, should, should we tell them how challenging it is and that there are all these complications? Um, and the other surgeons were a little perplexed. And you know, I had to get up and say, it's one thing to tell parents that they might need to have repeat surgery, that there might be complications. It's quite another for them to understand that that might mean that their child spends most of his summers having surgery and recovering from surgery and having a catheter and having infections and, you know, not being able to do things at school and not being able to participate in activities. There are a lot of really profound effects on the, the lives of families and children that, that they do need to be aware of before they make a choice like this. I, I'm sort of speechless that they would need to be told that. Let's go on then to um, another question. Because uh, obviously, as a parent and a physician, we can determine what you would want other physicians to know. And the question that they're asking, should we be honest with parents, means that parents might still be in a very precarious position, not getting enough information to really make an informed decision over treatment for their babies. So I guess I wanna jump ahead to a question of parenting. Um, parents want so much for their children. Parents want to protect them from 
all sorts of difficult things, bullying and teasing and being different and uh, all the, the rigors of navigating what could be a difficult world. How can parents deal with the fears that we might have that their child will be bullied or teased or all of those things for being different and then evaluate will surgeries address these fears and solve the psychosocial issues that parents are worried about? So I believe variations of sex development are are one of the few conditions where something that might be a psychosocial problem. We don't know that for sure. We don't have studies to show that, you know, how many people get teased or how many people have problems if they don't have surgery. One of the only situations that is turned into a medical problem that needs to be solved with surgery. You know, generally you solve psychosocial issues with psychosocial interventions. I think parents, I think the whole system probably needs to change. And what often happens is a baby is born with a difference, um, often involving the genitalia, something like hypospadias or um, you know, another condition where children who do have a uterus and ovaries are born with genitals that are more what we would consider typically male looking. And the first, if the first person they talk to is a doctor who says, I'm gonna fix this, that is framing it immediately as a problem. And I think what needs to happen is that the framing from, you know, the delivery room onward needs to be that your child has a difference, that this difference is actually pretty common. You know, one in 200 people can have a difference like this. Hypospadias is very, very common. And that a lot of people are living with these differences and we will give you all the support you need. We'll help you with personal support. We'll help you meet other people who have dealt with this and are moving through it. And we'll give you all the support you need. And if this is something that later on your child feels they would like to change, that they would like to have their genitals or their bodies look different, we can offer them surgery at that point. But at this point, your job, just like any other parent, is to love and nurture your child so your child can reach their full potential. That, that is what I think needs to change. One of the questions that I have is that there's an assumption that the child is urinating unhealthily. And what happens often with the surgeries is that because of the surgery, they actually begin to urinate unhealthily. And those complications multiply and increase as the child ages and grows up. And then from what you know, John has written in his book, there is just a long period in, in many men's lives of being terrified of getting medical care, but needing compassionate medical care and not being able to find it. So the other thing that, that I would love to see is the emphasis on healthful urination rather than the concern that maybe they won't be able to have Um, sexual intercourse in the traditional manner, and that they are healthy, and that surgery may not contribute to that health, that state of 
urological health. Does that match up with some of what you would observe? Well, I think for hypospadias, the problem in many cases is that someone who's a boy would not be able to stand and urinate like other children. There might be spraying or dribbling, or if the, if the opening for the urine is located more toward the bottom of the penis, they would have to sit down to urinate. And again, that's not really a medical problem. That's, that's more of a social problem. And personally, I know a lot of men who do sit to urinate, you know, a, a little more neat and tidy in some cases, or they just prefer that. But I think parents are made to feel like that's going to be psychologically unhealthy. And, you know, there, there's something out there where a urologist said a boy needs to be able to pee and write his name in the snow. You know, I, I don't know that today we feel that that is necessary to be able to do that. And in terms of looking at things from a health standpoint, I think that's a very good framing of things because if you have to sit to urinate, but you're not having infections and you're not having pain and you're not having other issues, is that less healthy than having surgery so that you can stand to urinate, but then having repeat infections and situations where you know, the, the urethra um, makes a tract to the outside of the penis. So now you're urinating out of two places or you have a lot of scar tissue that causes pain, you know, something that John described really poignantly in his book. In the 20 some years that I've been part of this wonderful community, um, I've observed things really change so that now people with all kinds of differences are coming together, like people who in HEA or people in interconnect, you know, there's a big umbrella, there's a big tent for everybody to get support and, and people are really helped by that. And I think what we would like to communicate to clinicians is that we are okay as we are. We don't need to have surgery to modify our bodies before we can have any part in making that decision, before we can even talk about it, before we even know what gender we feel most comfortable identifying with, or, or if we feel that one of the binary genders is appropriate for us at all. So my message would be for parents who are listening, take a breath, slow down, talk to other parents. Everything is going to be okay. If your child needs to sit to urinate, that is not the worst thing in the world. Yeah, you might feel your child is gonna get teased for that and maybe he will. But I think weighing that against the possibility of having 20 some operations and having many infections and many complications, again, maybe that's not the worst thing to, to happen to your child. And you're gonna love that child and make your child feel confident and self-assured. And that's what they'll take forward with them into the rest of their lives, just feeling good about themselves and the love and support that you gave them. One of my concerns is that if we raise the child with the expectation that at 18 or 20, they will begin to make this decision for themselves. <clears throat> if they're raised kind of with the expectation that surgery will solve these problems, or if they're raised to feel vulnerable as all people making a medical decision feel. When you're hit with some kind of medical question, there is a certain inherent vulnerability. Will 
our young people who are 18 and 20 and 30, will they um, be able to make the medical decisions with a clear eye or will they be making it through the haze of feeling insecure or vulnerable? I think that's true for any child growing up. Everybody feels insecure about, about some physical trait. It's very unusual not to. That's why uh, we have all kinds of young women going to have surgery to make their labia smaller, to have labiaplasty. Um, I, I think in our culture, there are a lot of signals that we all need to look a certain way or be a certain way. And yes, that, that is something that young people will have to contend with. But I think that if the messages that they're getting are more supportive and if they have adults who are like them, in other words, adults with hypospadias to support them and say, you know, th this, is, this may be a tough time now. Being a young adult is tough for everybody. Being an adolescent is tough for everybody. But, you know, on the other side of things, it's okay. You will have pleasurable sex. You will be able to have children if that's something that you want. You don't need to have surgery for the, in order for those things to happen. And surgery could make it worse. And then when they make their own decisions, of course, they, they do have to make their own decisions. If that's what they choose, then, then that's up to them. But at least they will know all of the facts and all of the possible outcomes there they could be and be able to weigh those versus the potential costs of those decisions. With parental decision-making, in my master's thesis, uh, the ideal was to have a team, a multi-talented, multi-faceted, multi-disciplinary multi disciplinary team to help parents really evaluate all of the questions that this raises before making medical decisions. But it was obvious that these teams were exceedingly rare. So what's, a what's the status of that and what's a parent to do? So there are actually lots of multidisciplinary teams and multidisciplinary means that there are people from different specialties and, and that includes pediatric urology, pediatric surgery, endocrinology, gynecology, social work, psychology, psychiatry. Um, I'm sure there are a few others in there, the genetics, a um, few others that I'm missing. And the, the team is not necessarily, everybody's opinion does not necessarily have equal weight. There's, there are always power dynamics when you have any situation like this. Um, there's always going to be someone who dominates and that tends to be the surgeon. And surgeons look through things, seeing that they have surgical solutions. And so often when the team is talking to a family, even if different members of the team talk to the family first, when the surgeon gets in and says something contradictory, like, oh yeah, we should fix this. Even if the other people did not say that, that carries a lot of weight. Um, and I think that that is, an issue that just having teams is not going to solve. There's actually research on this to show that, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty when, when parents are thinking about what they want to do. And so if it's presented to you that we can do surgery or we can do nothing, then, you know, what's a parent to choose? You're between a rock and a hard place. You know, not doing surgery really is not doing nothing. The, the not doing surgery is 
getting psychosocial support, having lots of people to, to help you, to help you get through this, to help you raise your child in a healthy way. But if there's the alternatives that are presented to you, surgery or nothing, parents will definitely choose to do surgery. Or if they say we don't have to do surgery, but if we are going to do it, it has to be done now or it's not going to work. You know, that, that is not really giving parents uh, an actual choice of how to proceed. If it's now or never, they're going to choose now. And that's something that really is pretty prevalent um, among these teams. There are so many confusing paradoxes, I think, for parents. And one was when we were told that it's better to do it when, the, when it's a baby because they recover quickly, they don't remember but then you realize they're having resurgeries as teenagers in their twenties, in their thirties. So why aren't the physicians looking at the long range and asking themselves, well, it may be convenient for me when the baby's one, two, and three, but is this the right decision for someone as they age, as they as they grow, as they have resurgeries when they're in their 20s and 30s and 40s? So I think in something like mild hypospadias, the hope is that there will not have to be more surgery, although you know, in a pretty, pretty significant number of cases there is. In the other situations, I think there's a feeling that surgery is so technologically advanced now. There's a lot of belief in technology. The hope being that because we're doing more advanced types of procedures now, they're going to be less likely to need to have more surgery. And that has not borne out. Um, and unfortunately, it's, it's something that it's a catch-22 because what you're doing, you know, what you find out was done 10 years ago that still needs a lot of surgery. You, you know, you say, well, that doesn't matter because now we're doing something more advanced but you won't find out that that wasn't the right thing to do either until 10 years from now. So it's really very difficult. Another big problem is that the people who take care of these conditions like hypospadias are pediatric specialists, and there are not a lot of adult specialists who know how to deal with it. So, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with this from hypospadias, epispadias association, people growing up and having problems and really having nowhere to turn because there's not expertise in adult surgeons to deal with these problems from childhood. And that's a really sad situation. John writes a lot about that also right. in, his, in his book. I think to summarize, if you are a parent of a child who has recently been found to have a variation of sex development, whether it's your newborn or a child who's a little older, you should know that everything is going to be okay. Having one of these variations does not mean that your child is going to have psychological problems later on. Yes, it could be that your child may have a more difficult time at, at certain points in their lives, but it's still going to be okay. We, we all have problems at certain points in our lives and we get through them with the support and love of our families. There is not a solution, a surgical solution to a child having this kind of difference that takes all of that away. Often people who have surgery feel ashamed that 
there was something wrong with them that was so bad that they had to have surgery. So they feel just intrinsically there's something wrong with them. The, the surgery is creating that shame. The surgery also does not necessarily people look like everyone else. Uh, you know, it, it can do so much, but you're not necessarily going to look like everyone else. You're not going to have the same genitals as everyone else. And there can be a lot of scar tissue. So, and the scar tissue causes problems. And I'm, and I'm always amazed at the discounting of trauma, just the trauma of children and families going through this and maybe going through it so many times that the trauma keeps compounding. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. There, there is one of the things that causes trauma is just children having genital exams. You know, after a while, they, they get to feel like they're experiencing child sexual abuse. It's something that's well known. So the exams, the medical visits, the surgery, the complications, the reoperation, it all contributes to trauma. This is a community that lives with a lot of trauma, people who have had this kind of treatment. And so I would say that keeping things as unmedicalized as possible, just focusing on the health of your child, is your child able to urinate? Yes. Does your child have infections? No. Then what's to fix? If your child can sit down to urinate, that's not a bad thing. That, that's healthy and normal. Um, just because your child's urethra does not open at the end of the penis does not mean that they're not going to be able to have children. There's all kinds of assisted reproduction that we have today that's very advanced. That, that helps people have families regardless of what their genitals look like. So um, just thinking ahead to the adult that your child is going to be, you know, love that adult. Think about loving that adult and what that would look like and, and what that adult would want for themselves. Dr. Barrett's Arlene, thank you so much. Um, I hope that the people listening gain the wisdom that you've gained. Thank you. I always love talking with you, Bonnie. You're, you're a really important person. Thank you. The hosts of this podcast are not medical professionals, and the information presented during the podcast is not intended as a substitute for medical advice. John and Bonnie are peers in the hypospadias community people who have been affected directly by hypospadias. And we are sharing our experience with you. If you or someone you love has a medical question concerning hypospadias, please consult your physician.